Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Uh, we are uh, going to do something that I don't know when, how long ago this has been done ever here. Uh, we're going to talk about something in a text that I really was going to avoid. Uh, at the end of this series, you start to identify uh, issues in the church and what we're wrestling with and uh, what the church is, what our function is. One of the issues, if you're, if you're really a church, uh, you are going to have some form of practice when it comes to what's known as church discipline. And it is often a misunderstood practice of the church, but it is a discipline that the church as a whole practiced from the very beginning. Historically, Christianity has, has practiced this, and they've done it in a variety of different ways. About 100 years ago, Baptists just sort of gave up on the idea of it, and so we just tended to just sort of like shove it aside uh, rather than talk about it. One of the things that we want to focus on in, as a church as a whole is our, our goal is to be biblical over being big. We, we're okay with being big, but more than being big, we want to be faithful, and we want to be found faithful, and so to do that, we have to wrestle with very difficult scriptures, very difficult texts that have complex implications. And so I started to avoid it. Uh, I've had sort of a sense of dread all week, like leading up to it. My wife was so dreadful about it, she just decided not to come to church today. And uh, I'm just kidding. She's celebrating Believer's Baptism with some friends uh, at, a, at another church today. Um, but, but we're going to talk about it, and we're going we're gonna to wrestle with it. One of the things that happened this past week in the news, uh, many of you, we all saw this, I, I would hope and imagine, uh, about the young man in Atlanta, Georgia, that walked in and he, he murdered and took the life of, of eight souls. And he blamed them for a variety of reasons. He said he was trying to, uh, to take away his temptation. And so he, he just had a very weird uh, worldview. Uh, obviously, he, he's insane. Uh, and and um, clearly, something deeply is wrong with, with him mentally. And, and he takes the life of these women. And it soon became found out that uh, he was a member of a Southern Baptist church. And so that church that he was at sort of went silent for a little while. And they issued a statement uh, about Friday. And one of the theologians that I follow online posted the church's letter, and so I'm sort of scrolling through it, and then I notice on, on one part of the letter, the church says this, we have begun the process of church discipline in, in this man's life. So we're, we are fixing to excommunicate him from our church and separate from him. Well, when you click on the comment thread, and you go down to the comments, there was one individual that made this statement. He said, um, just when the church needs him the most, they've decided to, to push him out. And I read that and I thought, what a, what a peculiar way to, to what, a, what a weird statement, right, uh, to make even in the midst of that. And I remember telling Haley, I looked at her and was reading her what was going on. And I said, I mean, the, the thing that it's interesting about this man that made this comment, just when the church needs him the most, they, they push him away, is if eight murders is not enough to put somebody in a process of discipline, like how many more do you need? Is one enough? Is, is 10 enough? 15? We're talking about murder here. Like, not a mistake. Like, had ill intent in his heart to, to take their life, and, and eight wasn't enough for this guy. And I thought, what a, what a weird statement to, to sort of make in the midst of this. Now, I have no idea if this man is repentant of his sin. I have no idea what's going on in his head, where he's at, just reading the news and what's going on. But there's a reason why. God, in his mercy and in his grace, he gives us his word, and, and he, he asks God's people to be able to wrestle with and to deal with things under the context of what we identify as just simply being church discipline, and then more broadly, thinking about it just in terms of conflict and how to handle conflict. So before we read the text, I want to say 
two qualifiers to, to this because I've been around long enough that when I talk about conflict and I talk about reconciliation and being restored to brothers and sisters, a couple of things happen in the midst of those conversations. Number one, if you have ever been physically or sexually abused, oftentimes, and I know this because I've talked with, with, with some of you that this is the case, you view the idea oftentimes of, of all conflict through that lens of, of that specific trauma that, that you, you went through. And if you'll just let me just pastor you for just a minute, what we're talking about here today by means of application and, and how to apply Matthew 18, we're not talking about victims of, of physical or, or sexual abuse. Because those things in and of themselves are almost completely um, irrelevant to the process of Matthew 18 because the obligation in those moments for me as your pastor is that we need to work through a process not for you to be reconciled to your abuser, but we need to work through a process where the law gets involved and justice is executed in, in that context. And so my, my promise to you in the midst of those things as a pastor, I will come and sit with you and I will go with you. And, and we will make sure. And so, so if that's you, just what we're talking about here is on an interpersonal level with, with conflict and being reconciled. And so all of us at some point, we, we're going to have issues in the context of the church, and we need to know how to be able to do that. The second qualifier that I want to say is just simply this, and you're going to see this throughout the text. The goal of church discipline is spiritual restoration, not earthly condemnation. The goal of going to confront someone in the sin is, is not so that you can condemn them, not so that you can beat them down, not so that they will feel shame permanently and stay there. They may temporarily as the, as the sin is revealed, but the goal anytime we go into conflict with people, it is to restore the brother and sister to the body and to restore the brother or sister to God. It's not to go browbeat them. It's not to hit them on the head with a hammer over and over again. The goal is to bring them back into fellowship. Two things when it comes to that is understanding that when we wrestle with discipline, we, we think about it in two ways, the formative aspect of discipline. And what I mean by that is, is that every single one of us here in this room is under what we would just call formative and what that means is, is that every day that you yield and submit to the Lord's leadership in your life, God is forming in you and he's changing things in you. He's disciplining you to, to change some things, to think differently and to act differently, to, to speak differently, to care about different things that are in line with his kingdom. And so he's forming you. Sometimes we do it automatically, but sometimes God has to get our attention in different ways. And, and the preacher's got to preach or the teacher's got to teach. And really, it's just about coming before the Holy Spirit and asking God to, to form in you and to change you. But the other aspect of discipline is, is the more the restorative, the, the formal side of church discipline and what it is, which is what Matthew 18 begins to talk about. If you've got your Bibles, pick up with me what we read in verse 15, where he says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. A couple things. When we are walking in fellowship and in community with one another, 
And I mean walking closely. We, we say here that we believe in circles more than rows. I'm glad that you're in the row. I'm glad that you're here. But I can't wait to get you guys physically back in your circle here on campus because those are the more formative places often for us to be. It's where we care for one another. It's where we know each other. So in order for, for me to get to this place, one, I have to recognize who my brother or sister is in Christ. I have to, to be accessible to them and walking intimately enough with them in community with my faith family to even identify this. So I have to be physically present, but then I also have to be engaged in that person's life. He goes on, he says, if he sins against you, uh, other translations just render it, if he sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Not to condemn, but rather to restore. James 5, 19 and 20 say this, My brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here's the deal, though. Before we do step one, before step one is ever even executed, where we go to the brother, there is this thorough soul searching within our own being to make sure that we personally are walking rightly and correctly before the Lord. That before we, we are known something, before something is, is revealed to us, we have to, we must be sure that we are right with the Lord and that, that, that we are seeing things clearly and, and being able to examine them clearly. But the second thing is this. The job of the Holy Spirit is to bring about conviction. We are not the Holy Spirit for people. We are not to go digging intentionally trying to root up things because I promise you, everyone in this room, myself first and foremost, we all have things that we are struggling with on a sin level, whether it be things that we are overtly doing or whether it be things that are deep within the recesses of our hearts, whether we lack faith or we're not trusting. Like Every single person in this room is without fault. And so we, we examine very closely, we examine very clearly, but then we go to the brother or sister when we see these things. Now you may be asking yourself, well, what are the things that I, that I, that I should go for? I, and just a, a quick guide on this, or just sort of a, a quick attaboy, um, we, we are allowed and permitted in Scripture that we can make judgments on things that God has made judgments on. So when God declares something wrong, we can say that that thing that he has spoken that is wrong, it's wrong because God never lies. And so we can say that about that act or about what's there, and, and we should be able to identify that. But when we go and when we identify and we see some things in, in someone's life, what we're, what we're doing in that moment is we're taking the holiness of God to, to, a, to a level that it should be. We're elevating it and we're saying, listen, God's plan for my life is that I would be conformed into the image of God and that I would be holy because he is holy and that he wants his children to walk in holiness to understand the eternal ramifications of sin and the consequences in, in this life and in the next. We had a gentleman in a previous church that um, it, it got out that he was in the sin of adultery. And it got out that he was going to leave his wife. And he had been confronted by, by one gentleman, uh, hey, don't do this, this is wrong, uh, stay with your wife, there are consequences for this. 
Well, then one day that gentleman who, who was wrestling with this and, and, and was just caught deeply and entangled deeply in this just web of, of, of lies in this relationship with this woman who was not his wife, well, he gets wind that, that he's going out to, to California where she lives. And so, you know what my, my friends did? They, they gathered two or three other men and they went and found him. And they pleaded with him all the way in California. He's from Texas. Come back home to your wife. What you're doing, it's wrong. That there are ramifications for this. Come, come back and, and be with her. We're pleading with you. We're, we're going to stand with you and, and beside you and, and for you. But, but this is what God wants is for your marriage to be made whole, to, to see it restored. And in that instance, though not in everyone that I've been a part of or experienced, that man came back home. And he was restored. And to this day, he's, he's there, committed, working on his, on his marriage, trying to make sure. But, but it took some, some gentlemen with, with a little bit of courage to go and to confront him of it. And then to take two or three because he denied it. And then they pleaded with him to come back and be made right with your wife and be made right with the Lord. A couple of questions that I think are helpful oftentimes in trying to identify uh, what, what sins and, and, and how, what do I pick on whether or not that I get to have a conversation about. You know, marriages do this all the time, right? We have to make decisions with our spouses, like what we're willing to tolerate and be okay with, and then what we need to have conversations about, right? I mean, it's fluid. Uh, sometimes you know it's very black and white, but sometimes it's gray and it's like, I'm just being nitpicky, or, or maybe I'm just feeling judgy today and just going to judge everybody in my house, right? Or they, I get judge, right, in the process. We, we go in and out of, of those things. So a couple of helpful questions. Number one, when examining this, I think it's helpful to ask the question, is the sin seriously dishonoring God? I mean, all sin dishonors God, right? We understand that. But is the sin seriously dishonoring God in such a way that, that not God is at stake and not his kingdom, but the earthly reputation of what people think about Christians and their God? If you claim this about God, but yet you act this way, then there's a discrepancy and we bring dishonor in that. Number two, is it permanently damaged a relationship? So are, are people backstabbing one another? Is, is there conflict? You know, it's the Lord that, that creates unity. It's our job to maintain unity. And so we fight for it and we contend for that unity to guard it. Has it permanently damaged the relationship? Well, maybe I need to go talk to someone about their behavior. Number three, is it seriously hurting other people? Or could it even be true that it's seriously hurting the offender himself? That the way he, he or she's living is putting themselves in physical danger based on what they're doing. And so there needs to be a conversation that comes. I'm reminded as I wrestle with these things and have wrestled with this issue before in, in previous churches. I'm always reminded and cognizant of when Jesus says in John's gospel, in John uh, 117, where he says Jesus speaks in, with both grace and with truth. He's truthful always. But he's gracious and, and how he does it, full of grace. Yeah, he, he overturns the, the money lenders at the, at the temple. He, he is very direct at times. And there are times which you, which you see sort of this righteous anger on, on display uh, before the world. But, but when Jesus speaks and he confronts, it was in grace and, and truth. And so that's informative for us because, listen, whether it's a, a Matthew 18 thing or there's just conflict with, with you, with, with other people, you, you're, you must be balanced. 
in your approach and how you talk to them. And, and one of the things that I'll often do when people will come to me and they'll, they'll say, hey, pastor, I need help. Or, or I had a, a lady that was in a previous church of mine where she used to always come to me. And, and it's like for her to build a relationship with me was her just telling me everything everybody else was doing wrong and pointing out like, you got sin all in this church. What are you going to do about it? And she would look to me and I'd say, listen, uh, I learned pretty quick. The first time I listened really intently. And then the second time I was like, something's off with this. And then the third time I was like, listen, um, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't bring about conviction. I can't verify any of these things that, that you're saying. And thirdly, if you want a relationship with your pastor, listen, um, I, I love you in Christ, but I do not like you right now. You are exhausting. That there is no way that we can go, nor should we as Christians, going and trying to undig and uncover as if that's the, the spiritual gift that God has called me to, is to pull out the dirt in your life and in, and in my life all the time. Like, you ever been with those people? It, it's exhausting. And it's no way to, to be sustained in ministry, but we ask the question, are you the person that should be doing the confronting? In some ways, it's as simple as, like, do you have the relational collateral to go? There, there are times where um, there may be an issue that, that you get really angry about, and, and, but you're not the person that, that should go. Maybe there, there's someone else. Now, maybe you're the person God has, has told to, to begin the, this process. But the second thing I want to say about that, and the idea of grace and truth through Christ and, and embodying that, listen, many disputes, many offenses, not all, should be overlooked. I'm going to tell you why I say that, because Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook it. There are times where we need to sort of just unwind a little bit, and, and it, the process is, is easier. But if I can't let it go, or, or we, again, it fits uh, the answer to one of those three questions from earlier, but, but we need to make sure that we're not easily offended, that we give the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, don't be a doormat to somebody's bad behavior. People full of empathy and, and mercy, very gracious people, oftentimes become people's doormats and, and they get treated poorly because they, they don't want to have a conversation that is truthful. They're very non-confrontational. Remember, the idea is we, we cannot have unity in the body of Christ apart from the truth of God's Word. So there are things that you have to talk about from time to time if you want to preserve the unity because God doesn't build unity around confusion and He doesn't build unity around lies. And so we contend for it in that way. The text goes on and he, he says in verse 17 of Matthew, he says, look, if he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So a couple of things about this. This is where it gets weird and uncomfortable. Most of us always get the first two steps. We're like, got it, can do that. But when it gets to this point, this is where there are, there are many applications and there are many churches that have goofed up on this. There are people sometimes that would say, well, listen, um, what I'm going to do in telling you the church, first of all, I think that's more of a formal process that should be led by an elder or a, or a pastoral staff that doesn't give you permission to then start talking about someone else's sin in your small group or in your community group. Like those things are, are, are not at that level. And then what you end up doing is you just, you just up gossiping about the person. 
I've seen it happen in churches where, where that was the intention. Well, it fi- to come to find out that what, what they were hearing and the reason why the person uh, didn't ever really repent because they actually didn't actually do the things they were being accused of. And it ended up breaking the relationship because it wasn't prayerfully done and, and thoughtfully done and the right people didn't go and, and it caused like severe uh, disunity and, and disharmony within the body. But he says if he refuses to listen, then you, you tell it to the church. And, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then he says you treat him as a Gentile and tax collector. What that means is he's saying, listen, you, you become, therefore, then in that moment, like an outsider to the faith family. And I'm going to be honest with you, Matthew 18 was written for the local church. In fact, Matthew 18 is one of the most profound texts arguing for church membership that exists within all the Bible. And the reason is, because when he says go tell it to the church, he's not talking about the universal church to go blast somebody on Twitter to seek accountability on Facebook or Instagram. He's talking about the body that they're with. And the reason why he says in this moment to tell the church is for one very profound reason, not to shame the individual, but just as God would send you in that person's life to sort of be a rescuer, and then that doesn't work, and then he would send two or three more, and you would go with that person with an attempt to bring them back into fellowship with the body. Then he says the reason why he does this is goes, now I'm gonna unleash the entire church to go after that person, to, to call them to a position of, of repentance and a, and a place of, of just coming to terms like, hey, listen, we want you to walk rightly with God and to be with him and to come be us. This is not an issue of, of Nathaniel Hawthorne's 1850 book, The Scarlet Letter. This is not an issue of, of we're going to imprint and we're going to burn on you or burn on someone else a letter A that you have to wear around because you're an adulterer. And we've excommunicated you in, in this way. That's, that's not the purpose of this. But rather to say, as God's people living in right relationship with him, we love him or her enough to say, come back home. Come back here. Re- repent of your sins and, and walk with us in fellowship. And, and let's see what, what our good God can do in his kindness. And then he says, if they, they don't do that then, he says, then you treat them like a tax collector as an outsider. The difficulty with that text by way of application is is that now there are uh, so many churches around that they will just pick up and and they'll go to the other church. And it's difficult because most churches, even in the Metroplex, they don't keep track of membership. They don't know who's in their fold. And so I can just pick up and I can go and and they've just been released and they they go and get, get sent off. And it becomes extremely difficult in, in trying to do that. But, but the reason why you do that in that moment is, is not because you're trying to kick them while they're down. But, it, but it's precisely because like when you were a little kid and your mom and daddy caught you doing something, you get a whooping, which I got plenty of them, or they'll stick you in a room and, and you go into timeout. And, and the really old school will remember the day where you had to like turn the chair and face the corner and you couldn't look away, right? You remember that? And you were meant to sit there and stare at the wall and to separate from all the other good things that were going so that you will realize what it is that you are missing out on. And you stand there and, or you sit there or, or whatever that is until you're allowed and released by your, your mom or dad to, to get out of jail and now we can get back to normal, but we're going to understand ourselves and we're going to experience that separation. 
It's meant to, to, to make people feel a, almost a void, that, that I'm, I'm missing being with my, my friends and my family and my brothers and sisters. It's, it's meant to bring them back in, not to keep them out. The challenge with that in the age of COVID is, one, I have to be, or really in any age, is I have to be walking closely with my faith family before all this. I have to be in relationship with people. I have to be in my circle, engaged with people, loving and, and caring. And then, and then maybe there's this time where, where this happens. And, and, and I don't know. I don't know how that can be applied. And, and, and it can be applied in a lot of different ways. The time for it, all of those things. But I want to recap just a little bit. We've got this idea of private correction. The individual goes but when we go, we examine our motives, we're, we seek to be pure before the Lord, we are prayerful in his word, we are, we are gentle, and we are careful, and we are even precise with what we say and, and how we say it. But if that doesn't work, then we, then we take sort of a, a small group clarification, right? Uh, we take two or three more, and then we go there, not to gang up on this person, but rather to, to pull them back in, saying, we love you, we want you to turn from your sin, because we really believe the Bible when it said sin leads to our destruction. It's death. We don't want you to, to die. We, we don't want you to be destroyed because you're caught up in those things. Look at verse 19. He says, again, I say to you, this small group clarification, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask and it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. That word agree there in, in 19, it's a symphonio. It's where we get the word symphony. And it means that, that literally we agree on the sound. We, we come together and agreeing on this. And, and what we're doing is Jesus is giving a promise to his people that in the context of seeking to restore a brother, he is with us. I don't know how many times I've, I've heard uh, well-meaning Christians, and I'm guilty of this before as, as well, uh, where we'll just say things like, you know, we can have church anywhere. You know, that promise that Jesus gives where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. Well, well, that is technically kind of true, but that's not what that verse means. What that verse is given in the context of when you go to pull a brother back in, he's saying, I'm going to be with you. When you get that group of men or women together, I'm going with you and I'm going to be present with you. And then he's going to begin to use our words and, and our posture towards that to bring that person back to a place of, of contrition and, and walking in a place of repentance. But if that doesn't work, you send the church after them with this church admonition. And then lastly, you, you treat them as an um, unrepentant, almost hostile unbeliever. So that they'll experience and feel that separation. I, uh, I almost didn't preach this text in this series. I almost thought, nah, I don't know that, our, I don't know that we're ready for this just yet. Most pastors, uh, they avoid it like the plague. Because it's complicated. But yet, even in the midst of that, God gives it for his glory and for our benefit, for our welfare to, at least today, just begin wrestling with it. And as one of your elders, I don't know all the implications to it. I don't know what that ultimately looks like, but, but ultimately I know this, like I think all scripture is, teach, is, is profitable and all scripture is useful. And that as a pastor, I should never skip over the difficult text. 
And wrapped up in this is this idea historically even that the church has, has practiced this for, forever. We, we just forgot it about 100 years ago. And, and some churches do do it and some do it better than others. And, and the reality is that, that God puts these orders in, and it puts these, these steps in this order for a reason. That you go first quietly one-on-one. And then you, you pray for repentance. Listen, we do that all the time on staff, at home, with one another. It's just this gentle conversation that, that is brought about. And, and, and maybe we have to go, uh, like we illustrated earlier, and, and, and get two or three to go and to gather. And, and, and maybe there's a sense in which those other things expand. I don't have all the answers for that. I would, it would probably take me and, and our, our elders 30 sermons to really flesh that out and, and what does it look like emphatically and, and what do you pick and not pick and how do you decide and, and when and who. And, but we want to be faithful, right? So we want to talk about it in, in the context. But wrapped up in this idea of discipline is the idea that when I go to be restored to my brother, that I'm walking in forgiveness. And the reason why I know that is because as soon as Jesus ends this, his saying in verse 20, Peter turns around and asks him this question in Matthew 18, like, how many times do I got to forgive people? Like, if the offense is given, like, seven, seven times seven, like, what, how many times is enough, right? And so I want to I end today, and I want to I give you a couple of things about forgiveness just in our interpersonal relationships that I think are helpful for us that we can derive from Scripture. Number one, when I know that I've forgiven someone and I'm walking in restoration, I don't end up dwelling on the incident. When I've really come to a place where, where I've received forgiveness or given forgiveness or I'm walking in forgiveness, I'm not dwelling on the, inc on the incident. But number two, it means that if I've practiced forgiveness with you and been restored to you or you to me, that I won't bring the incident up again and constantly seek to remind you. Oh, remember when you did that to me? Remember when, when you did that? And anytime there's a quarrel, it gets brought up. Listen, I, that means I've not wrestled with forgiveness. It doesn't mean that I forgot. Like, like forgiveness is not being forgetful. Like we remember things that, that happened to us. It's a posture that we choose to stay in and enter in. It means I'm not going to talk about, about the incident to other people. I'm not going to say, well, you don't, you know, you better watch that. You don't know what they did to me. Let me tell you what they did to me. Or let me tell you what, what so-and-so did to, to that person. Like, we've not entered into a place of forgiveness, and churches can be uh, just downright awful when it, when it comes to this, um, all under the guise of, let's pray for this person. Let me tell you what they, they did. Just terrible. Carvin does this all the time, telling on people. Mike is right there with him every single time. Like, we shouldn't be doing that. And the, the fourth thing is, I'm not going to let this incident stand between us or, or hinder our personal relationship. And I'm going to walk in forgiveness with them and alongside them and be restored to my brother. I want to recommend a book for you uh, today. It's by a guy named Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. And I had to read it in seminary, and, and it was a great book on just conflict and, and life and in ministry. He's got this whole uh, expanded ministry. You can find all of his stuff online. Just speaks with just incredible wisdom about conflict and forgiveness, and particularly in churches and interpersonal relationships. Just a, a brilliant man that God has gifted to speak to these things. But this morning, where I want to conclude is, is just with this idea that if I love somebody enough, 
and I see them walking in sin, that, that when I don't go to them, it actually demonstrates that I don't care or love them very much. If I see them walking in a way that doesn't bring honor, but I just go, you know what? That really says that I don't care for the person, whether the opposite is true when we go to them, to say, hey, let's talk about some of this. Am I seeing this correctly or, or what's the issue here? That demonstrates to them that I do love them. When my wife, in her tender, kind way, points out something in my life that I need to change, or, or maybe I'm just going through a season where I'm just irritated all the time, or maybe, I, maybe I'm not engaging, you know, whatever it is, when, when she lovingly, and in, in only the way that Haley can do it, and, and she knows exactly how to speak, and I, and I go, you're right, I, I, I didn't even see that, but I've, I need your forgiveness, and, and it shows me that her being willing to talk about it and confront me, it means that she loves me, and vice versa. And that's how it works in the church, friend. If we love each other, we lovingly and, and gently and, and kindly, we follow the, the path that God has laid down for us as we seek to maintain the unity that God has given. This past week, I was asked by a staff member, asked a great question. They said, um, what do you, how do you see our role uh, in, in, in church and in culture? And I was like, that's a great question. And here's my answer to that and how it applies back to church discipline. I said, my, my response to him in that moment was this, that I think one of the healthiest ways, one of the most meaningful ways that churches participate in culture is that we seek health in the life of the church. The reason why culture is so messed up is because churches are so messed up. They are often a reflection of what goes on inside buildings as people scatter. And so one of the meaningful ways that we seek to engage culture is we just want to be biblical and we want to be really countercultural in our way. We talk about things like, like this, which is just weird to, to some people. It's weird to some of you right now, I know. We talk about the Lord's Supper. We, we talk about things that have been done for 2,000s of years and we set ourselves apart as we live in exile for a pretty good while. And we lean into that to be separate. Let me pray for us. Father, our time is gone. We, we thank you that in Christ you have given us everything that we need. You have given us forgiveness of sins. God, you have redeemed us and we're grateful for it. But Father, I ask that as your people that we would pursue one another in, in meaningful ways. I pray that we would practice honoring your, your word in, in Matthew 18 and demonstrating that we love and care for one another by how we go to each other and, and live life alongside each other. I pray, God, you'd help us do that graciously and, and kindly. Lord. Would you help us just be biblical? I pray now, Father, in this room, there's anybody watching online or here today that, that doesn't know you, that they would be drawn to you by, by your pursuit of them and, and you bringing them into your story, Lord. And so I pray for that repentance of sin, that faith to believe that you are who you say you are. I pray that today would be their day of, of salvation. Church, our response in this time is to pray and to ask the Lord to reveal anything in us that we need to confess and repent of. And as he begins to reveal those things to us, then we 
We can cry a little bit. We can weep. We can feel shame and condemnation, but just for a moment. And then what the gospel does, why it's good news, is it, it allows us to, to look to God with hope and with joy. And so would you do that now? Father, would you help us respond? Would you lead us according to your spirit? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.